My grandmother was a guardian who tended a kingdom of cabbages. Leafy, layered planets in constant orbit, Emasamin. Umambele was a general rearing a battalion of survival at 50 cents a head. In imitation of Genesis, she could craft a field into her image long before the sun had sobered to rise. Her husband, Ungoche, was himself a spade, toiling in the tunnels of Josie, the colon of Gauteng, which is constipated with gold and the bodies of black men, spewing them out in opposite directions, one to the bus, the other to the grave. My grandfather was an intercessory prayer, praying in picks, his penance paid inside a rock, his sweat would flow like rivers of provision and sacrifice, but sometimes like signals of smoke, all the way to a Gamahok, where they were funneled into grandmother's veins of steel and a back as broad as the mountains of Ukobokob. Here she would midwife a harvest, all Canaan-like, all giant-headed paradise-like. This cabbage connoisseur could craft seven variations of cabbage dishes, and there were revelations between those leaves chopped fine like sermons. And my inheritance lay underneath their fingernails. Even now, when it rains, I find that I crave the soil three times a day. Some call it anemia, but I know it to be communion. Sipogazi, join us. What are you afraid of? I am afraid of fading into obscurity. History matters to me. It matters where I come from, the people that gave birth to the people that gave birth to me, their contribution to the story of our family. Mm. And I want to be part of that contribution. When was the last time you had dirt under your fingernails? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's been a while, actually, and I think it's why I miss living in a space that has a garden. Mm. Uh, where I live now is, you know, the re- I want to say the results of capitalism, <laughs> but really probably <laughs> functionality in terms of space. Um, and there is there is no garden where I live. And is that what life looks like for you when, I suppose, this capitalist world doesn't force you to do things you don't want to do? Although these days it feels like you mostly do what you want to do. Yes, I'm getting close to doing what I want to do. So is it wide open spaces, a place to plant, reap what you sow? Is that is that what the ideal is for you at some point? So this is strange. My, my parents are people who love gardening. Mm. Um, it never quite caught on for my sisters and I, you know, in terms of green fingers. Um, so I, I, I enjoy spending time in nature. I enjoy, you know, grass. I enjoy the beach. I enjoy being outside in that way, but not necessarily to take care of it myself. So I would appreciate if someone can take care of the garden and, and look after those things. But there is that proximity. I mean, the line in the poem about uh, craving soil is actually literal in ways as well, because my mother, when she was pregnant with me, was kind of addicted to eating soil. And I'm anemic, and so I've always had that physical craving for soil. But I only enjoy, inverted commas, I would enjoy eating soil from back home. 
until we figured out I was anemic. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, soil for me has something to do with home. Wow. And there's a way in which I relate to it in different parts of the country. So, for example, the soil in, in Gauteng is a lot closer to the Eastern Cape. Um, but that's also visually there's a lot of sand in, in Cape Town. And so there's a sand. In, and for me, I feel like the soil itself is anemic. Yeah. In in, 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 in the Western Cape. Wow. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's, in, it's in the way things taste, in the kind of vegetables that grow, in the kind of uh, foliage. So the soil or our connection to it and to place, I think, has something to do with homo familiarity. So being born in the Eastern Cape means that I relate to the ground in similar ways. So I'm looking for something that is akin to what's happening in the Eastern Cape. So you go to other places and the soil is very red and dusty. Right. Um, so so there's, for me, there's recognition in what the soil actually looks like. I totally get what you're talking about because I grew up enjoying eating soil too. Yeah. When my parents have a farm, the sand is grainy and, and uh, loamy, sandy. In Debele, we say, Okay. Also, I mean... Not nearly as tasty as <laughs> as the soil I grew up eating in in Mashona land in in, uh, in Arare. You know what I love about that? Um, besides feeling like safe, this is a safe space to speak about eating soil. Because some people find it strange. Yeah, is that it? It it creates that connection between the body and the ground, mm. right? So you think about dust to dust, ashes to ashes. So that sense of the the decomposition of the body back into earth. But the fact that the, there's a real connection between eating soil or craving it and anemia, so there's some lack in the body Absolutely. that is fulfilled, all right, surely by iron supplements, but that can be fulfilled by consuming something out of which the same body is made. So there's a beautiful connection for me between, I guess, life, decomposition, but there's there's, there's that cycle about, about our own connection Ooh, to meta. place. Yes, Ooh, meta. yes. <laughs> and and I do believe, uh, well, no sort of soil scientist, but I have read that red soil typically has a high iron content. So mm. that's remarkable. And it, as it happens, my favorite type <laughs> to dabble in <laughs> from time to time. Sounding like soil connoisseurs. <laughs> yes, yes. I do like my soil. <laughs> One of my favorite things is the smell of the earth after rain. Mayine, mayine imvula. Mawavule kamazulu kukazu kelo mafu abongileyo. Avuze imvula yenzikelelo. Nazi izifundiswa zingwamile zingwanelewe ikamfa ilikonisa umpefungo. Babile beziduba befunda imini nobu suku panzikwe jokwe yemfundwe. Long umkla wamvuzo emisebenzi yabo emihle. Bata bandwa nakabezala, kapa kapa kapa, imanzi lokwe yam, nam di chonangogu, gum, gum, magududume. Mayine, let the rain fall on the shoulders of those who bear the weight of rural dreams. Those who are trees planted here to bloom under the sun of knowledge, to produce a harvest that will transform destinies and communities. We see your people in you. We see how they see themselves in you. How you walk in the shadow of a hope greater than your own. Those whose names are first and only. Who departed from home with just enough in their pockets to leave and they promise to return. Today you exchange the robe of responsibility for pride. A gown and cap and a piece of paper which guided you like a map. 
now wielded as a chart to mark a path for the many feet eager to walk in your footsteps, wearing nothing but dreams and your story. Gum, gum, magududum. I know you don't make it your business to explain things that people should and can discover about you, your language, and your people, should they make it a priority. And so I imagine there was a time, perhaps in your career, when you did feel obliged mm. to... Um, make yourself more accessible. Do you remember when that stopped and what led to you deciding that's not how you'd roll anymore? I think the easiest way is to maybe start with where does it come from, where that instinct comes from. And that comes from being born during the state of emergency years of South Africa and really coming into being as a child during the transition years, right, as a teenager. And so... I was, you know, one of the first black people in an, a, a white school, in an African school. And so relating to my culture and being othered in certain ways, not being able to speak my own language. So it's because we're not allowed to speak, it's because on school grounds. And so that kind of formation linked to colonization, linked to that impact, has meant always having to translate myself, always having to speak in another tongue, both linguistically, but culturally as well, sort of showing up in a very specific way. And I think poetry and the arts have been part of the journey of not translating myself anymore. One might call it a kind of decolonization, perhaps. Mm. Uh, but certainly once I was doing the work that I was doing during my honors year, there was a lot of thinking about my own culture, thinking about where I come from, that bled into my work. And so in, I, I think the honors year was very important for me in, in my own, inverted commas, decolonization, even before you know, we had the movements here in South Africa, into thinking, you know what, actually, I don't feel like I should translate myself. Yeah. Um, let's, let's, let this be a two-way journey where the audience also does the work of understanding. Yeah. And I've heard you talk about the awkwardness of speaking... English better than you speak your mother tongue. And um, I remember how freeing it was to hear you talk about it because I too got a posh education mm. steeped in English for which I am grateful because it has perhaps awkwardly and unfairly and unfortunately um, opened the world up to me in a way that perhaps speaking is in it does not do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the poem you just shared, I see you sort of honor those who've come before. And I wonder how you think of yourself as a bridge for a generation that might be even more disconnected from their language and the beauty that's tied up in it and consequently what's lost when they don't speak it or even know it, value it, or even like it, mm -hmm. you know? So I, I wonder how you think of yourself as a bridge, or do you? I think bridge is a great word, also hybrid because I think yeah. I'm, I'm a product of the two cultures. Yeah. I used to feel very outside of both, which in some ways I am. But moving from lamenting that positioning to claiming it as the truth of where I am and the truth of this country, because that's what it is. It's a product of the politics of this country, the history. It's the dirt under your fingernails. It's the dirt, in a way. yeah. <laughs> and, and here's the thing, it's like feeling culturally anemic. 
wow. moving yeah. with that alienation from, I, I guess it's kind of an imagined ideal self mm. of what would what is a Kosa woman? Mm-hmm. What should she be able to say? What should she be mm. able to do? And for me, it's no longer about that ideal. And so it's even less about trying to go back to claim my culture, to claim my ideal you know, right. closerness, right. but rather forward. And so that has meant reading is closer. I mean, I, I have friends recently who had published poetry in his closer, and you can tell that there's this more modern, contemporary take on what it means to write in his closer. And it does mix. And I think the mix is perhaps a more exciting place to occupy rather than the pure, trying mm-hmm. to be purely this, purely mm-hmm. that. And that is what I hope I offer to the present and future generation who eventually will look back on me as well, mm. back or the people that came before us, to say the mix is not something to fear. It just occurred to me, you can lean into the tension, revel in that tension, mm. mm-hmm. rather than mourn it. I think mourning is, is part of it. Mm. We start probably in the morning. And that happens within certain spaces. I think Mm. that's also, like you said, proficiency in English opens up the world in a certain way, but it's also a certain world. You go back to, you know, your mother's village, that that world is not not open. Not so hot that you can't, (laughs) you can't, um, you know, make it through, you know, five minutes without some English. Exactly. Mm. Right. And so that's where the morning comes in. All right. There's Mm. something here that's, that's lost. Again, it's like eating the soil. The way in which I'm trying to feed what seems like a lack or an an inadequacy is by connecting myself to my culture in certain ways. I get to choose, you know, which of those parts I get to read is because I try and watch is because of shows and where I'm just really trying to consume the language and and learn more of it, which I, I speak, you know, but even when I look at my writing, it's very different. Yeah. It's very different what I'm able to do in English versus what I'm able to do in Iskosa. This word awkwardness actually mm. sums it up for me because so much of the creative work I enjoy in the world stems from leaning into awkwardness mm. and embracing mm. it and, yeah, recognizing that we probably wouldn't have a lot of the most beautiful things we, we love and enjoy and embrace if it wasn't for the awkward. The awkward but, is a beautiful place. I'm, I'm okay with <laughs> awkward now, I guess. I'm okay with awkward. It's beautiful. We do not get over the fettered trunks of our lost histories, the naked roots and fallen family trees. In this unapologetic winter, we recast what remains of black bodies as fuel, weigh which of our ancestors' bones are still good for wood, and inherit their propensity to survive the fire. I, my grandfather's lungs and encounters with gold bequeathed in silicosis. She, her mother's heels kneading the ground, subduing the protests of mud to the forefore of a doidoi. Them, their grandmother's eyes haunted by specters of the old houses unavenged on District 6 streets. In Alex, Bizana, Edujua, Mafikeng, Nyanga East, Ekobogobo, Umlazi, Mitchell's Plain, we do not get over the past without betraying ourselves for bowls of soup. What makes you angry? Injustice. You know, wrongs that have not been righted. 
and especially the ways in which those who are marginalized are forced to live with that injustice and to let it occupy their bodies, to occupy the space that people live in, the, the way in which people are able to move. It's an example that's used quite frequently. You know, the difference between Santon and Alex, such close proximity, mm. but worlds apart. And to think what it feels like to move between those worlds mm. and have to live with that difference. You just made me think of the difference between access and inclusion, mm. right? Mm -hmm. So if you think of someone who lives in Alex, you know, township, you know, like you say, right next door to, to Santon, mm. which is what the wealthiest square mile in the country, you know, someone who lives in Alex technically has access to everything, you know, Santon has to offer, but they're not a part of it. It's not for them. So when was the last time you were asked to get over it? <laughs> well, maybe in those words, but perhaps it, it was implied in some other way. It, it happens all the time on Twitter, <laughs> perhaps not to me directly, mm. but it's a conversation that's highlighted in very specific ways, the sense of just get over the past, move on already. And I think whenever there's a sense of protest against inequality, there's that sense of, look, it's been this long already get over it. Why are we still having this conversation? It's no longer the past. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually, it happens quite frequently. Yeah. And so what response do you recommend? You know, here's the other thing I, I've, I've grappled with, the, the privilege of being able to articulate a nuanced view on things. So you, you take something like the looting that happened mm, mm, um, mm. some months ago here in South Africa, and you and I could have a, a very nuanced um, and layered conversation about the whys and the hows and, and sort of 360 the thing where I'd imagine someone without that privilege feels perhaps a binary sense of response that might come down to whether or not they rob somebody today. For me, I'm almost less, it's that translation thing again. I'm almost less interested in, in someone finding ways to articulate their pain and, and their struggle and more interested in the person on the other side doing the work to understand. Mm. So the, we often put, place that burden and that responsibility on the person who's undergoing the trauma. Mm. But if you're the person that's saying, why don't you move on? I mean, guys, apartheid was, you know, this many years ago. Maybe you need to go and do that work. You need to go and figure out why people are not over it. And I know it's simplistic to kind of, you know, people are probably not going to do that work, but... That's where the challenge is. It's like we don't have to spend that much energy in carrying the burden of explaining why there's no access. Mm. If you have the access, take the time to go and figure out mm. why things are the way they are. So, so, so taking on that responsibility to have empathy, to have compassion and move outside of your world, move outside of your privilege and go and learn. The information is out there. Mm. We need a bit more empathy, a lot more actually. And empathy that has political will and change. Not just, oh, that's sad. Yeah. But to actually be part of the change. Thank goodness for poetry, though, because that's a great way to get the conversation going for sure. Absolutely. I'm, I'm grateful as an artist to be able to, to provoke and spark the conversation mm. and help people to think outside of themselves. Thank you, Sipogaz. Thank you for having me. Thank mm -hmm. you.
Dirt Under Our Fingernails was produced by Andile Masuku, Sipokazi Jonas and Spike Ballantyne. Poetry written and performed by Sipokazi Jonas, interview conducted by Andile Masuku. Audio engineering, mixing, mastering and sound design by Spike Ballantyne. All rights reserved Andile Masuku, Sipokazi Jonas and Spike Ballantyne 2021.